Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy talks about the tensions and violence in the Middle East. It is a barbaric attack by Hamas. They must be destroyed. There's an enormous outpouring of sadness, of anger. I'll chat with actress Olivia Puckett, who's one of the stars of the Old Glow production of Hair at Two River Theater in Red Bank. We've all sort of become hippies. We All we want is equity and equality and love and acceptance. WBGO's John Kalish reports on the late Harry Smith's connection to the jazz world. John Swed says in the late 1940s, Smith and the Bay Area literati were swept up by the audacity of bebop. And our film critic Harlan Jacobson takes us to the New York Film Festival. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. The fighting between Israel and Hamas enters an eighth day Saturday with fears of a ground offensive growing stronger following an Israeli order to evacuate the northern region of the Gaza Strip. A UN spokesman says Israel's military told the UN late Thursday that all of the northern Gaza's population needs to evacuate to the southern portion of the enclave. The Israeli order gave 24 hours for more than 1 million people, nearly half of Gaza's population, to evacuate. The Israeli order applied to all UN staff and those sheltered in UN facilities, including schools, health centers, and clinics. On the latest episode of WBGO's call-in show, Ask Governor Murphy, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy spoke with host Nancy Solomon about how the violence has impacted our area. First of all, it's an unspeakable tragedy. It is a barbaric attack by Hamas. Uh, They must be destroyed. There's just no way around it. And and you, you and I have talked about this. I've, I've made eight trips to Israel, Tammy nine, four uh, during our time in office here. About seven years ago, we were in one of those kibbutzes right outside of Gaza that was ravaged. Uh, it's just, uh, just an awful, uh, awful, awful reality. So how do we react? First of all, unfortunately, we've had at least one death uh, as, that I believe is now confirmed, gentleman Ite Glisko. God rest his soul, spent some time growing up in Paramus. We have uh, Aiden Alexander, who's a Tenafly guy. I've been back and forth with his mom and dad as recently as 10 minutes ago. Uh, He is missing. He's a member of the IDF, Israeli Defense Force. Mm -hmm. So we've got that reality, you know, missing, perish, please God, no, uh, injured. We have a lot more folks who are stranded, who are trying to organize uh, safe passage. So that's been a fairly significant topic. And when you say we, do you mean the state of New Jersey or do you mean you're coordinating with some federal authority? Very much with the feds uh, partnering for sure, but very much with the feds um, uh, in the two spots that we keep coming back to consistently are the State Department and the FBI on all of the above what I've just spoken about. Um, and then we have the inside of New Jersey uh, reality. So we've got from the hard to the soft, the hard being we want to make sure that all of the targets that might be deemed as soft targets, houses of worship. Um, by the way, we have 
uh, among the largest Jewish populations of any American state, among the largest Israeli-American populations. I think we have the number one Palestinian population. You've got houses of worship of all varieties, in that case, both temples and mosques, daycare centers, federations, communities generally. So that's a huge focus of the attorney general, superintendent of the state police, myself, county and local law enforcement. And then over to the softer stuff, as you mentioned, I was in Hoboken last night at a vigil. My wife is in Long Branch as we speak. The lieutenant governor and the attorney general have been covering other ones. There's an enormous outpouring of sadness, of anger. It's very personal. It's very hard to meet someone in our state, particularly in the Jewish community, that doesn't have some nexus to this. They've got somebody there. I've spoken to somebody who was visiting his kids who live in Jerusalem on Saturday. You know, there was a Jewish holiday, so you had an unusual amount of, of traffic from, I'm sure, America, but certainly from New Jersey. We've lowered the flags this week uh, in memory of the innocent victims. And again, the barbaric assault on these innocent Israelis. But you've also got innocent, innocent folks of other uh, walks of life, including Palestinians. You can hear the entire Ask Governor Murphy program at WBGO.org. There's a new take at Two River Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey on a legendary musical. When the moon is in the seventh house And Jupiter aligns with Mars Then peace will guide the planets And love will steer the stars This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius The age of Aquarius Aquarius Opening Two River Theater's 30th season It's a very familiar musical Really controversial at the time when it opened in 1967. Now it has a whole new meaning. It's the Old Glow production of Hair. The American Love Rock musical runs through October 22nd at Two River Theater in Red Bank. And joining us is one of the stars of the show. She plays Sheila, Olivia Puckett. Great Hi. to see you, Olivia. How are you? Great you. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you on the show as well. Well, let's let the sunshine in, right? It's yeah. the summer of love uh, in this show. A group of young Americans dream of a beautiful future filled with harmony and understanding. How about your character, Sheila? What have you tried to bring to this role that you feel is special? First, being a woman of color, um, and Sheila has been primarily played by um, white women. So um, it was really great to to sort of tie in some, you know, I, I did a lot of research on like a little bit of Angela Davis and Shirley, Shirley Chisholm, um, obviously Gloria Steinem, a white woman, but, you know, fought for all people. So I, yeah, I just tried to bring in a little bit of um, that sort of um, revolutionary uh, fighting for race equality and for female equality and for love. And, and our director, James Vasquez, he was really, helpful and influential in helping me play this character in an authentic way as a brown and black woman. So yeah, I just try to bring some authentic 1960s uh uh realness. Yeah. 
So you mentioned your character's difference a little bit in the show, but as we talked about, in the late 1960s when this opened, why is it still relevant today, hair? Oh, gosh. I mean, unfortunately, especially in um, what is happening right now in the world, um, we are still dealing with so much fear of um, the other. And I think that hair, you know, dealing with the Vietnam War, that was a huge moment of fear in the world. And hippie love sort of has this, we sort of make fun of it these days, but I think that we've all sort of become hippies. We All we want is, is equity and equality and love and acceptance. And I think it's just so relevant today still. And I can see it, you know, in the audience, it's so fun. We get a lot of different age groups and we're getting people who were very much alive in the 1960s. And then we're getting kids who are, you know, in college and their reactions are both the same. And I'm like, just look at each other. We are still the same people fighting for the same things. Can you tell us a little bit more about Sheila Falls in love with her roommate uh, in this show? And can you tell us a little bit about how that develops for you and and what you've brought to this? You know, you, you talked about being a, a woman of color bringing this, but how about the actual plot? Yeah. Um, so Sheila... It, you know, she's a uh, freshman at NYU, and I think she's found this group, this community of other young people fighting for the cause. But she sort of takes on the role of, the only way I can sort of describe it is like kind of Wendy in The Lost Boys a little bit. Um, you know, she probably has to get to class and she meets this uh, this free and kind of wild guy burger who's also a teenager that's something that people forget is the characters in hair are all teens they're all you know 19 18 17 and i think she's just really intrigued by this kind of wild man um it, it's a it's he's fun he's he says what he you know thinks and they fall for each other and uh you know there's a very important scene in the show where she you know buys him a yellow shirt and she's he thinks she's trying to get him to conform and he's like that's the opposite of what I want to do and she's like no I just want to see you and love you and I think that happens to all of us you know when we're younger we try to we try to fix and we try to um we try to get people to like be their best selves and I just think their relationship is so real and so beautiful and heartbreaking and cringy and um yeah when you have a cast like this for hair, obviously there's got to be some sort of bonding going on, whether it be in rehearsals and now that the show is is running at Two River Theater. How has it been working with the other cast members? A dream. Just so much fun. Um, we have one of the smaller um, ensembles. It, usually hair is like 20-something people. And we have, I think our cast is 12 of us maybe. Yeah, it's just been a blast. And Two River has treated us so well, and we're just really lucky. It's running at the Joan and Robert Ratnick's Theater there at Two River Theater in Red Bank. You mentioned the director, James Vasquez. Tell us a little bit about, has he changed you at all as a performer? He has. James is so open, um, which you don't always get. He's really open to conversation we, we had rehearsals where he would say, you know, what do you guys think is happening here? I don't want to tell you. And that's so rare. <laughs> and 
he was just, he's just great. He's, uh, he also works with um, the old globe often and he, you know, directs the Grinch. So he's really good with kids. And honestly, all people are just little kids. Like I just want to be treated like a kid sometimes and be taken care of. And yeah. Um, And then, you know, James was here with us. um, And then his associate, Noel Marion, I'm pretty sure I'm saying her last name correctly. She took over and she was also extremely instrumental in making this production happen. Uh, It was very fun also to get a man's perspective and then have a woman come in. I mean, it's, it was, we're so lucky to have both of them. Once again, we're speaking with Olivia Puckett, who is the star, one of the stars of the two river theaters and old globe production of hair that runs through October 22nd. She plays Sheila in the show. Now you'll notice that behind me, I have the poster for Hamilton on my hat. I have a lot of Broadway shows, including Dear Evan Hansen, your Broadway career, Dear Evan Hansen, Motown, and also national tours of Hamilton, Motown, and American Idiot. So we know when you have roles like one of the Schuyler sisters in Hamilton, you can sing because uh-huh. those are very demanding roles. Well, first of all, let's let's talk about Dear Evan Hansen. You were part of, of this show, and uh, not only did you have various roles, but you're also the dance captain. So you're a... You're an actress of many talents because uh, you're just not uh, a performer. You dance as well. Yeah, um, it, it's funny. I, I think I played I played sports my whole life, so I was always very um, physical, and I would sort of dance in productions in high school and stuff like that. But then um, in college, I one of our dance teachers was like, "You, you really can dance," and I was like, "Oh, okay, cool." <laughs> I was really lucky to be asked to be the dance captain of Dear Evan Hansen, which wasn't a very dance heavy production, but there was very sort of pedestrian movement. And a lot of the dance captain job was also uh, blocking. And I would sort of put in some of the new Evans into the show, which was really fun. Is there any pressure at times? This is your debut at this theater. So it's the first time these people get a chance to see Olivia Puckett. With all that experience behind you, especially doing national tours, is there any kind of anxiety? The, the first time you stepped onto the stage, was there anxiety? Oh, first, second, third, fourth, until the end. I have horrible stage fright, to be honest. Um, but with a show like this, you get to literally shake out the nerves. So it's been really kind of fun to like face my... Uh, my fears head on. Yeah. I'm like, I'm an actor with stage fright, which I think is very common. Um, I would get it horribly in Dear Evan Hansen. It was debilitating sometimes and I would still somehow figure it out and do the show. But I've been lucky to be surrounded by casts who are so, and crew who are so helpful whenever I'm feeling really nervous and anxious. And they're like, take a sip of water, take a deep breath. This is just a play. Yeah. But I still get very nervous. Yeah. Hmm. Well, one of the beauties of doing a Zoom interview with Olivia Puckett is we get to also meet a special friend that's been behind her during this interview. Who do we have here? Esther. This is my... <laughs> she. It's like she knows the camera's on. You want to say hi? Hi, Esther. She's grumpy. <laughs> she wants to go outside. Um, Yeah, so another bonus of doing shows 
near well Esther actually went on tour with me so she's seen the whole country but because we're in Jersey I sort of brought her back here snuck her in we can't be separate separated from each other we have separation anxiety right does she love to hear you sing you know it's funny she doesn't she gets like she's like that's so loud what are you doing oh my god (laughs) she loves music but when I sing she's like she like leaves the room she's very like what is that sound (laughs) a true critic I love it. It's nice to meet you, Esther. And it's been wonderful chatting with Olivia Puckett, one of the stars of Hair Running Through October 22nd at Two River Theater in Red Bank. Continued success. And we uh, look forward to not only this show's run, but other exciting projects with Olivia Puckett. Thanks so much. This was so much fun. You can see my entire interview with actress Olivia Puckett on the WBGO Facebook page. Last week, we told you about the new show at the Whitney Museum, surveying the work of the late Harry Smith. This week, WBGO's John Kalish reports on Smith's connections to the jazz world, which included painting specific jazz recordings and having jazz musicians improvise to screenings of his experimental films. Smith was close to major jazz players on both the West and East Coast. John Swed is the author of a new biography of Harry Smith titled Cosmic Scholar. The book chronicles Smith's move to the Bay Area of California in 1945, where he initially lived in Berkeley in the hopes of studying anthropology. John Swed says in the late 1940s, Smith and the Bay Area literati were swept up by the audacity of bebop. The arts people, at least a significant number of them, jumped into it. The one guy who I know spoke about it was Jordan Belson. He said it was simply the most radical thing going in their time, and they all thought they had to be part of it. Harry may have been along the same lines. This was kind of abstract art and sound. In addition to his work in anthropology, Smith was a prolific artist who drew and painted. He also started making abstract films without a camera, painting on film stock instead. Smith's experimental films were among the first motion pictures shown at an American museum. They were screened at an institution that became the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Philip Smith is a Berkeley bookseller who's been researching Harry Smith for 30 years. He does murals on the walls of the most important San Francisco jazz club, Jimbo's Bob City. You can see pictures of Charlie Parker playing with these things on the wall. He's making abstract films by painting onto the film. And he starts having jazz musicians improvising in response to the abstract visual images that he's projecting live. In the autumn of 1948, Harry Smith moved into the Fillmore District, an African-American neighborhood in San Francisco, and was living above a Creole restaurant called Jackson's Nook. Again, author John Swed. 
the idea of a white guy, particularly like him, suddenly moving into a totally black area is just bizarre. He was staying in a place that was a restaurant and a roomy house, and they let him stay for free, which is more than white people had done. So Harry moves in, and they all accept him. And then he becomes close to these people. I have stuff from Percy Heath, who was very close to him, the guy from the Bottom Jazz Quartet. And he said, we all thought he was this cool guy. They knew he was totally devoted to what they were doing. Smith sketched everywhere he went, especially at jazz clubs. He did a series of stunning abstract paintings interpreting specific songs by jazz artists. Again, Philip Smith. He starts painting like Dizzy Gillespie records in this abstract style, but it's like way over the top because he's smoking weed, he's doing peyote. He does a series, six or known, of these Dizzy Gillespie records, uh, First Manteca. Manteca! Manteca! Then seemingly Algo Bueno, Lover Come Back to Me. These are extremely complicated works. They're abstract and representational at the same time. In a 1965 interview, Harry Smith says that he could play a record and point to the painting where the music has been converted into a specific image. Each line in that painting represents a certain note on the record. Like if I had the record, you can project the painting to the slide and then it can point to a certain things see like the main theme in there which is to do 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 are those curved lines up there see do 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 none of the paintings smith made of jazz recordings seem to have survived but thanks to slides shot by a fellow painter reproductions are on display at the whitney show Elizabeth Sussman is one of the curators of the Whitney exhibit i asked her what she made of harry smith's jazz paintings I think they're really fascinating, and I think the fact that they don't exist in their original sort of keeps people maybe from saying, oh, you know, we should put them in the history books because they're not seeing them. They're only seeing reproductions of them. It's a shame. He really did consider himself a painter. He was gifted. He thought that there weren't so many distinctions between music and gestural painting. You see that. You feel that. Though he's best known as the editor of the seminal six-LP anthology of American folk music, during the nearly four decades Harry Smith spent in New York, he didn't go to folk music concerts, but he was around the jazz scene. Over the course of his life, Smith got to know a number of prominent jazz musicians, including Dizzy Gillespie, Ornette Coleman, Charles Mingus, and Thelonious Monk. In between sets at the five spot on the Bowery, Thelonious Monk could often be found at the East Village home of Smith's friend Lionel Zipperin, which became a salon for artists in the 1960s. Zipperin was the first person a penniless Harry Smith visited when he arrived in New York. Among the visitors to the Zipperin's Alphabet City Brownstone were the tenor saxophonist Stanley Turrentine, and the French horn player, Junior Collins. Smith went with the Zipperins to the venerable jazz club Birdland, where Charlie Parker often joined the Zipperin table. During his time in New York, Smith also hung out with jazz musician David Amram. 
For the WBGO Journal, I'm John Kalish. The 61st New York Film Festival comes to a close this weekend, and our film critic Harlan Jacobson, who worked there for a decade, returns to sift out what the festival launches into the greater New York Metroplex during the coming months. Though it launched at Venice, what could be more local than the New York premiere of Bradley Cooper's Maestro as a slice out of the life of Leonard Bernstein, the Lawrence, Massachusetts-born but quintessential New York success story? educated at Harvard and at the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia, who had that star's born moment one night in November 1943 to conduct the New York Philharmonic at Carnegie Hall in order to substitute at the last minute with barely any time to prep for the great Bruno Walter, who fell ill. Lenny, as he was forever known to millions around the world, made the front page the next day of the New York Times. As director and actor, Cooper unpacks screenwriter Josh Singer's Lenny, and it was Singer's baby for years before he got Cooper to sign on, as a bisexual man living inside a publicly heterosexual marriage to Felicia Montealegre, an Argentine socialite who understood him, supported his genius, made a nest, peopled it with kids, and ultimately bore his emotional betrayal. The Bernstein children opened their Fairfield home as a location, The production recreated their Dakota apartment for a day and a half of shooting and from the get-go eagerly supported Cooper's film over a dock they didn't like, probably in the interest of rebuilding Lenny's canon. Maestro is at least as much about the toll Lenny's rise took on Felicia, played by Carey Mulligan, who has made a career out of playing cold. Opposite Cooper's Roman Candle, Mulligan walks a fine, cool line in a film that wonderfully seduces us with Matthew Libatique's black-and-white cinematography of their young years, crescendos in the color of their success, but doesn't climax so much as comes sweetly to a rest. Here, they replay a routine between them in their courtship and later years. Oh, well, it's, uh, 12. No. <laughs> Six. No. Eight. Can you try, just call Maybe I should stop and think for a second. You should stop and think, because I am sending it to you. Funny. No. <laughs> so how long do we have to do this for? Oh, we need to build up a very strong connection. <laughs> Are you itching to move? No, I'm not. Mm, Actually, at all. I'm thinking of a number. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. Nine. No. Five. No, you have to think. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to. It's two, darling. Two. It's two. Like us, a pair. Two little ducks in a pond. When Maestro had its gala festival showing this week, it was like summoning a ghost of Lenny to the Avery Fisher Hall that he'd inaugurated for the New York Phil, which never got the acoustics right until David Geffen, a kid from Brooklyn, spent enough money to rewood the place and put his nameplate on the door. Dolby spent some thousands of dollars in sound equipment to summon Lenny's ghost for a memorable one-night stand at Lincoln Center. You can see the film in theaters in November, 
and on Netflix in December. Also in the 61st New York Film Festival's Jewel Box were a number of great films from around the festival world. Taken from the edge are two films as different as they could be. From winning the Golden Lion at Venice, The Brilliant Poor Things is by Yorgos Lanthimos, a Greek director I haven't liked much over the course of his decade-long career. Poor Things is a Victorian feminist Frankenstein tale. It's like a mashup of David Cronenberg's crash with hot sex taking place in wreckage and the Western Canadian wild man Guy Madden's 2003 film, The Saddest Music in the World, set in a Winnipeg brewery during the Depression. In Poor Things, which I loved, Emma Stone's Bella Baxter is a composite of her mother's body, accommodating her own fetus's transplanted brain after her suicide, as the baby brain matures, all engineered by mad scientist Willem Dafoe, whose face looks as if it has been stitched together after a volcano. Mark Ruffalo and Rami Youssef are the men Bella meets along her Candide meets Frankenstein journey, lumbering into the sexual revolution. See it when Searchlight releases it in December. And Aldert Road's Taste of Salt, the second film, Raven Jackson's debut film from Sundance, is a poetic memoir of growing up as a black girl that just lets the viewer absorb details of rural Mississippi life over decades, as if you're there just off in the corner watching them all read the room, the water, and each other. A24 releases it in November. Finally, like me this weekend, you can see Ferrari by director Michael Mann, the festival's closing night film from Venice. In a story that details what happened to all that beauty, my least favorite actor of the moment, Adam Driver, plays Enzo Ferrari. No doubt, some of my colleagues will have discovered that a man hired a driver to wreck a fast car with style blown out by male bluster, and all the actor had to do was show up. That's me, I'm showing up, and I'm Harlan Jacobson. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz and blues station, WBGO and WBGO.org.